Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 8th, 2014, and my guest is Gary Marcus, professor of psychology at New York University. He has written widely on the brain. His latest book is Guitar Zero, The Science of Becoming Musical at Any Age. We're going to talk about human intelligence, artificial intelligence, building on a recent talk and article on the subject uh, that he has done, whether we should be worried about artificial intelligence running amok. Gary, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks very much. I should mention, by the way, that I actually have a more recent book that's very relevant, which is called The Future of the Brain, Essays by the World's Leading Neuroscientists. Maybe, maybe we'll touch on that. Uh, excellent. We'll put a link up to it. Now, there have been a lot of really smart folks raising the alarm about artificial intelligence, or as it's usually called, AI. They're worried about it taking over the world, forcing humans into second-class status at best, or maybe destroying the human race. Uh, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking have both shown concern. And here at Econ Talk, I recently spoke with Nick Bostrom about the potential for superintelligence, uh, which is what he calls it, to be an anti-human force that we lose control of. So let's start with where we stand now. What are the successes of artificial intelligence? What are its capabilities uh, today in 2014? Well, I think we're a long way from superintelligence. People have been working on AI for 50 or 60 years, depending on how you count and we have some real success stories, like Google Translate, pretty impressive. You can put in a news story in any language you like, get a translation back in English, and you'll at least figure out what the story was about. You probably won't get all the details right. So Google Translate doesn't actually understand what it translates. It's parasitic on human translators. It tries to find sentences that are similar in some big database, and it sort of cuts and pastes things together. It's really cool that we have it. It's free. It's an amazing thing. It's, it's a product of artificial intelligence, but it's not true intelligence. It can't ask, answer a question about what it reads. It can't um, uh, take a complicated tra- sentence and translate into, in that into good English. Apparently, I can't either. Um, it, it has problems, um, even though it does what it does well. It's also typical of the current state of AI, which is it's a little like an idiot savant. An idiot savant that's mastered this trick of translation without understanding anything deeper. So Google Translate couldn't play chess. It couldn't learn to ride a bicycle. It just does this one thing well. And that's characteristic of AI. So you can think, for example, about um, chess computers. You know, That's all they do. Watson is really good at playing Jeopardy, but IBM hasn't yet really mastered um, the art of applying it to other problems. They're working in medicine, for example, but nobody would you know, use Watson as their doctor just yet. Um, so we have a lot of specialist computers that do particular problems. Superintelligence, I think, would at a minimum require things like the ability to confront a new problem and be able to say, well, how do I solve that? Let me go read up on Wikipedia and see. You know, superintelligence ought to be able to figure out how to put a car together, for example. We don't have an AI system that's anywhere near being able to do that. So this is in progress, but we also have to understand that the progress is limited but on some of the deep, excuse me, on some of the deeper questions, we still don't really know how to build genuinely intelligent machines. Now, to be fair to AI and those who work on it, um, I think uh, some—I don't know who made the observation, but it's a thoughtful observation that 
anytime we make uh, progress, well, let me back up. People say, well, computers can do this now, but they'll never be able to do X, Y, Z. Then when they learn how to do X, Y, Z, they say, well, of course, that's just an easy problem, but they'll never be able to do what you've just said, say, understand the question. So is it, we've made a lot of progress, right, at a certain dimension. Um, Google Translate's one example. Uh, Siri is another example. Waze, W-A-Z-E, is a really remarkable uh, direction-generating GPS thing for helping you drive. They seem sort of smart, but as you point out, they're very narrowly smart, they're, and they're not really smart. They're, they're idiot savants. But one view says the glass is half full. We made a lot of progress, and uh, we should be optimistic about where we'll head in the future. Is it just a matter of time? Um, I think it probably is a matter of time, but it's a question of, like, are we talking decades or centuries? Um, um, Kurzweil has talked about having AI in about 15 years from now, you know, true artificial intelligence, and that's not going to happen. Um, it might happen in the century. It might happen somewhere in between. I don't think that it's in principle an impossible problem. I don't think that anybody um, in the AI community would argue that we're never going to get there. I think there have been some philosophers who have made that argument, but I don't, I don't think that the philosophers have made that argument in a compelling way. I do think eventually we will have machines that have the flexibility of human intelligence. Going back to, <clears throat> to something else that you said, I don't think it's actually the case that the goalposts are shifting as much as you might think. So it is true that there's this old saying that, was, that whatever used to be called AI is now just called engineering once we can do it. Right. Um, and there's some truth in that. But it's also some truth in the fact that the early days of AI promised things that we still haven't achieved. Like there was a famous summer project to understand vision. Well, computers still don't do vision. I mean, that was 50-some years ago. And computers can only do vision in limited ways. Like my camera does face recognition, and that's helpful for its autofocus. Amazing. You know, that's pretty cool. But there's no you know, digital camera that you can point out in the world and say, watch what's going on and explain it to me. There's actually a program that Google just released that does a little bit of that. But if you read the fine print, they don't give you any accuracy data. And there's some really weird results there that, like, if a two-year-old made errors like that, you, you would bring them to a doctor and say, is there some kind of brain damage here? Why is my right. kid doing this? Yeah, so the... Uh, we we talked here uh, in a recent episode, and you write a, or talked about it the uh, the cat recognition pro program that that Google has not so good. Yeah, so the cat the cat recognizer right it was the biggest neural network ever constructed to date. It was on the front page of the New York Times about two years ago. Turns out that nobody's actually using it anymore. The Times got very excited about something that was sort of a demo, but but not really that rich. So it would what it really would do is recognize cat faces of a particular sort. It wouldn't even recognize a line drawing of a cat face. It would just <coughs> cluster together a bunch of <coughs> similar stimuli. Well, I have a two-year-old. That's not what he does with cats. He doesn't just recognize this particular view of a cat. He can recognize many different views of cats. And he can recognize drawings of cats. He can recognize cartoons of cats. We don't know how to build an AI system that does that. So what would Ray Kurzweil say in response? You know, he's, he's an optimist. Uh, he thinks we're in many dimensions. We'll talk about some of the other ones as well. But, you know, he says it's, quote, 15 years away. W w besides the fact that it um, makes it more fun to listen to him uh, when he says that, what do you think is – what, what does he have in mind? Does he have something in well, mind? Or just he's always talking about this exponential law. He's always talking about Moore's law. Um, he's always saying, you know, look at this. Look at how much cheaper transistors have gotten, how many more we can pack in, how much faster computers have gotten it's, you know, there's an acceleration here. I think he calls it the law of accelerating returns or something like that. And that's true for some things, but it's not for others. So 
for strong artificial intelligence, which is what we're really talking about, where you'd have a system that really is as flexible and clever as a person, you look over the last 50 years and you don't really see exponential growth. So, like, we had this chatbot called Siri um, back in the 60s, even before I was born. So that's a funny way to use the word we. But the field had um, Eliza that pretended to be a psychiatrist, and some people were fooled. Um, and some people were, presumably got comfort from it. And some people presumably got comfort from it. But it didn't Maybe. really understand what it was talking about, and it was really kind of a parlor trick. And, you know, if you talk to it for long enough, you would realize. Now we have Eugene Guzman that does a little bit better, quote, won the Turing test this year. But it did that by pretending to be a 13-year-old Russian boy who, you know, didn't know our culture and our language. It was basically a, a big evasion, as Eliza was. It's not really any smarter. Siri is a little bit smarter than Eliza because it can tell you about the movies and the, maybe the weather and so forth. But I wouldn't say that Siri is an exponential increase on what was available before. I would say it's you know a lot of incremental engineering um, for 50 years, but not anything like exponential improvement. What I think Kurzweil conflates is the exponential improvement in hardware, which is undeniable, with software where we can exponentially improve certain things. Chess has gotten exponentially better. But on the hard problem of intelligence, of really understanding the world, being able to flexibly interpret it and act on it, we haven't made exponential progress. We've made linear progress and not even a lot of that. So let me raise an unattractive um, thought here, uh, and I'll lump in myself uh, in a different way, or at least my profession, to try to soften the, the um, ugliness of it. Uh, isn't it possible that people who are involved in AI, who of course are the experts – are a little more optimistic uh, and about both the, the potential for progress and the um, I- impact of it on our lives than maybe they ought to be because they're self-interested. You know, I think about economists. I should say that I am involved. I've actually um, started a very quiet startup company. Um, I would like to see AI advance you know, from a personal profit um, perspective. Um, I write in AI journals. I just had a paper accepted um, yesterday in communications um, um, of the ACM, which is one of the big journals. I have another one coming out in, in AI magazine. So, I mean, I am part of the field now. I, I've kind of converted over from cognitive science to artificial intelligence in some ways. Well, that's okay. Um, I, I, you're allowed to and, still be self-reflective about your possible biases. Yeah. And I look around in the field, and there are some people who are really excited, and there are a lot of people that aren't. So. Um, I'm running a workshop uh, in Austin, co-running, I should say, a workshop in Austin um, about sequels to the Turing test. This is coming up uh, at the end of January. And my co-organizers and I just did an interview, and we talked about why we did this. Um, so we were trying to build a sequel to the Turing test, and we all have this sense that the field has gotten really good at building trees, but the forest isn't there yet. And I don't think you'll actually find that many people in the field that will disagree. No, I know, but in terms of the – and by the way, the, the, explain what the Turing test is for those who don't know, and I'll we'll come the, back the to it. The Turing test is, is, is this famous test that Alan Turing devised to see, <coughs> say whether a computer was intelligent. And he did it in the days of B.F. Skinner and behaviorism and so forth, and we wouldn't do it this the way he did it. Um, but he said, let's operationally define intelligence as let's see if you can fool me into thinking you're a person if you're actually a machine. And – I don't think it's actually that meaningful a test. So if we don't have that long to have a conversation, I can make a computer that kind of you know, pretends to not be very smart. That's what this program Eugene Guzman did, not very smart or not very 
sophisticated, can be paranoid and so forth, and so evades the questions. And all that's really showing is how easy it is to fool a person, but it's not actually a true measure of intelligence. It was a nice try, but it was 60 years ago, you know, before people really had computers. Like, and somehow it's become this, you know, divine test. Um, but it, it doesn't, it hasn't kept with the times, which is the, the point of this, this session that, that Manuela Veloso, Francesca Rossi, and I are running um, at the AAAI Society, you know, the Big Artificial Intelligence Society. So let me come back to this question of bias. What I was going to say is I think if you ask most economists how well we understand the business cycle, say, uh, booms and busts, recessions, recoveries, depression, they'd say, well, you know, we have a pretty good understanding, but it's just a matter of time before we really master it. And I have a different perspective. Uh, I don't think it's just a matter of time. So I accept the, your point that there's certainly people in AI who think we haven't gotten very far but it seems to me that there are a lot of people in AI who do think it's only a matter of time and uh, and that the consequences are going to be enormous. They're not just going to be like a marginal improvement or, or a marginal challenge. They, quote, threaten the human race. Before we get to those consequences, which I, I actually do think are important, um, I'll just say that there's this very interesting data gathered by a place called MIRI in Berkeley, M-I-R-I, machine uh, intelligence research, something I forget what the last I is. And what they found is they, they traced people's prediction of how far away AI is. And the first thing to know is what they found is that the, the central prediction, the, 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 I believe it was the modal prediction, um, and close to the, the median prediction, uh, was 20 years away. But what's really interesting is that they then went back and divided the data up by year. And it turns out that people have always been saying it's 20 years away. They, they were saying it was 20 years away in 1955, and they're saying it now. And so people always think it's you know just around the corner. The joke in the field is that if you say it's 20 years away, you can get a grant to do it. If you say it was five years away, you'd have to deliver. And if you say yeah. it's 100 years, nobody's going to talk to you. As a 20s, yeah, 20s, perfect. Um, let's go. Let's go back to your point about uh, the progress not being as exponential as, as say the hardware and as people might have hoped. You said it's been linear at best, maybe not so much. It, it seems to me that we've made very little progress on the qualitative aspect and a lot of progress on the quantitative aspect, which is what you'd expect, right? You can, you'd expect there to be a chess-playing program that can move more quickly, look at more moves, etc. Uh, driverless car is a little bit more sophisticated, it seems to me. It requires a different – maybe a different kind of processing in real time. Uh, well, actually, the driverless cars are really interesting because you could do it in different ways. Same with chess. Um, you could imagine playing chess like people do, right? The grandmasters only look at a few positions. It's really interesting that they're able to do that. Nobody knows how to program a machine to do that. Instead, um, chess was solved in a different way through brute force, through looking at lots of positions really fast, with some clever tricks about deciding which sets, but you know, looking at billions of positions rather than dozens. Or um, It turns out in driving, you could also imagine sort of two ways to do it. One would be <laughs> you teach a machine to have say, values about what a car is worth and what a person is worth. And, and um, you give it a three-dimensional understanding of the geometry of the world and, and all of these kinds of things. In a way, what Google's actually doing is coming closer to brute force. They have an enormous amount of data, um, a lot of, I think, hand-coded cases, although I'm not exactly sure how they're doing it. And they rely on incredibly detailed roadmaps, so much more detailed than the regular maps that you rely on. They rely on things down to a much finer degree, like I don't know if it's by the inch or something like that, 
they don't have the exact data, um, which you know they don't share very freely. But from what I understand, the cars can drive around in in um, the Bay Area because they have very detailed maps there. But they wouldn't be able to drive in New York because they don't have the same maps. And so they're relying on this specialist data rather than a general understanding of what it is to drive and interact with other cars and objects and, yeah, and so forth. I think it was David Otter who was talking about it here on Econ Talk. He said it's more like a, a train on tracks than it is like a, the way a person drives. Um, it, yeah, it's a very good analogy. And so let's, let's talk about that um, non-brute force strategy for a little bit. I think a lot of people uh, believe um, that it's just a matter of time before we understand the chem- the chemistry and and biology and physics of the brain, and we'll be able to replicate that in a box uh, and make a really good one or a really big one so that it would look at a dozen moves in a chess game and just go, oh, yeah, it would have intuition. It would have what we call intuition. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, <clears throat> my new book, The Future of the Brain, which is an edited book not, um, with a lot of contributors, not just me, um, is partly on that question. Um, and there's several things I would say kind of bringing together what everybody there has written. Um, The first is nobody thinks that we're that close to that. So people are trying to figure out how to look, for example, at one cubic millimeter of cortex and figure out what's going on there. And people would be thrilled if we can do that in the next decade. Not that many people think we'll really get that far. Um, So there's a lot of question about how long it will take in order to have, let's say, a complete wiring diagram. And where we are now is we have some idea about how to make a wiring diagram where we don't actually know what the units are. So imagine you have a diagram for a radio, but I've, I've obscured what's the resistor, what's the transistor, and so forth. You just know something goes here. Well, that's not going to tell you very much. Um, people are aware of the problem. So um, part of the Brain Initiative is sponsoring a bunch of programs to figure out what kinds of neurons do we have. How many different kinds of neurons are there in the brain? We don't even know that yet. A lot of people think it's like 800 or 1,000. We don't know what they're all there for, why, why there's so many different ones. We know there's an enormous amount of diversity in the brain, but we don't have at all have a handle on what the diversity is about. So that's one issue is when will we actually have enough data? And the sub-question there is can we ever get it from a living human brain? So we can <coughs> cut up mouse brains, and most people won't get too upset about it. So, it, um, But nobody's going to you know cut up their... They're, they're living relatives in order to figure out how the brain works. They might want to, but it's They might it's want gauche. to, but yeah. you know, most people are going to draw the line there, right? So, so um, there's actually interesting things you can do. Like you can take some brain tissue from people with epilepsy where they have to remove part of the brain, and you don't want to sort of cut too little out because then you, you leave things um, in and sort of like removing a tumor. You, you, you know, there's a kind of delicate balance. So you get some extra brain tissue from living human brains that you can look at. So it's not that we have zero data, but it's pretty difficult to get the data that we need. Um, and then if you have it in the dish, it's not the same thing as, as having it in a live brain. So it's not clear when we're actually going to get the data that we would need to do a complete simulation of the human brain. But I'm willing to you know go on record as betting that that won't happen in the next decade and maybe not in the next two decades. Then you have a question of <clears throat> how do I put it all together in a simulation? There are people working on that question. It's a very interesting question, but it's a pretty hard one. And even if people figure out what they need to do, which requires figuring out what level of analysis to have, which is something um, your 
economics audience should understand. Like, do you want to model things at the level of the individual or the corporation or, you know, where, where what's my sampling unit? Well, that comes up in the brain. So, you know, do I want to model things at the level of the individual neuron or the individual synapse or the molecules within? Makes a difference for the simulation, how complex the simulation is. In the worst case, we might need to go down to the level of the molecule. If we need to do that, the chance that the brain simulation will run in real time is basically zero. Why is that? Why is that? So, so, I mean, the computational complexity gets so vast. You can think about, like, the weather right now. You know, people know how to build simulations of the weather where you take a lot of detailed information and you predict where we're going to be, excuse me, in the next hour. That works pretty well, right? Predicting the weather in the next hour is great. Predicting it in the next day is okay. Predicting it two weeks ago, from now, forget about it. But we're, we're pretty good. We're pretty good at November through January is going to be colder than right. We have some. Real, yeah, you can get some. You can get some broad trends, and I can give you some broad trends without doing a detailed simulation of the brain. Like I can tell you, if I offer somebody the choice between a thousand dollars and five dollars, they're going to take the thousand dollars. I don't need to do the brain simulation <laughs> to get that right. Um, but if I really want to predict your detailed behavioral patterns, then to do that at any length of time beyond a few seconds, it's probably going to be really difficult. It's yeah. going to be very computationally expensive. And if there are minor errors, as there may well be, then you may wind up in totally the wrong place. And you also think about the famous butterfly flapping its wings in Cincinnati and that you know, changes the weather somewhere else. Um, we're going to get effects like that in the brain. So it's just not clear that anytime soon is that going to really be a, bu- a way of building AI. And then the third objection I have to that whole approach is we're not trying to build replications of human beings. I love um, Peter Norvig's line on that. Peter Norvig's a director of research at Google. And he says, look, I already built two of those, i.e. his kids, right? Yeah, he's good at that. <laughs> we know how to do that pretty well. The real question is how do we build a machine that's actually smarter and doesn't inherit our limitations? Another book I wrote was called Kluge, which is about the limitations of the human mind. So, for example, our memories are pretty lousy. Nobody wants to build a machine that has lousy memory. Now, why would you do that? And if all you could do was emulate every detail of the brain without understanding it, that's what you'd wind up with is you know a computer that's just as bad at remembering where it put its car keys as my brain is. That's not what we want. They really have to understand the brain, not just simulate it. And that's a pretty hard problem. Given all that, why are people so obsessed right now, this week almost, it feels like, with the threat of of super AI or real AI or whatever you want to call it, the Musk, Hawking, um, Bostrom worries? We haven't made any progress, much. Uh, we're not anywhere close to understanding how the brain actually works. We're not close to creating a machine that can think, that can learn, that can improve itself, which is what everybody's worried about or excited about, depending on their perspective. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But why do you think there's a sudden uptick uh, spike in uh, focusing on the potential and threat of it right now? Well, I, I don't have a full explanation for why people are worried now. I actually think we should be worried. Um, I don't understand exactly why there was such a shift in the public view. So I wanted to write about this for The New Yorker a couple of years ago. And my editor thought, don't write this. You have this reputation as a sober scientist who understands where things are. This is going to sound like science fiction. It's not going to be good for your reputation. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I think it's really important. I'd like to write about it anyway. We had some back and forth, and I was able to write some about it, not as much as I want. 
Um, and now, yeah, everybody is talking about it. I don't know if it's because Bostrom's book is coming out or because people have, there's been a bunch of sort of hyping AI stories to make AI seem closer than it is, so it's more salient to people. I'm not actually sure what the explanation is. All that said, here's why I think we should still be worried a bit. Um, if you talk to people in the field, I think they'll actually agree with me that nothing too exciting is going to happen in the next decade. Um, and there'll be progress and so forth, and we're all looking forward to the progress, but, but nobody thinks that 10 years from now we're going to have a machine like HAL in 2001. However, nobody really knows downstream how to control the machines. So the more autonomy that machines have, the dangerous they are. So if I have an Angry Birds app on my phone, I'm not hooked up to the Internet, you know, the worst that's going to happen is if there's some coding error, maybe the phone crashes. Not a big deal. Um, but if I hook up a program to the stock market, it might lose me a couple hundred million dollars very quickly um, if I had enough, you know, invested in the market, which which I don't. But um, uh, you know, some company did in fact lose a few hundred million dollars, like in a few minutes, a couple of years ago, um, because a program with a bug that is hooked up and empowered can do a lot of harm. I mean, in that case, it's only economic harm, and you know, be it. I mean, maybe the company went out of business. I forget, but you know, nobody died. But then you, you raise things another level, and it, if machines can control the trains, which you know they can and so forth, then machines that either deliberately or unintentionally, or maybe we don't even want to talk about intentions, you know, cause damage, can cause real damage. And I think it's a reasonable expectation that machines will be assigned more and more control over things, and they will be able to do more and more sophisticated things over time. And right now, we don't even have a theory about how to regulate that. Right now, anybody can build any kind of computer program they want. There's very little regulation. There's some, but very little regulation. Um, it's kind of a little, little ways like the Wild West, and nobody has a theory about what would be better. So what worries me is that there is at least potential risk. I'm not sure it's as bad as, like Hawking said. Hawking seemed to think like it, it's like night follows day. They're going to get smarter than us. They're not going to have any room for us. Bye-bye, humanity. And I don't think it's as simple as that. The, there will be machines eventually that are smarter than us, so I take that for granted. Um, but they may not care about us. They may not wish to do us harm. You know, this, computers have gotten smarter and smarter, but they haven't shown any interest in our property, for example, or our health or whatever. Um, so far, computers have been indifferent to us. Well, I think I think they have no intention other than what we put in them. And, and I think the... the uh, parallel worry with this idea that someday we're going to cross this boundary from these idiot savants into a thinking machine is that, well, then if they're thinking, they must have intention. They must have consciousness. I think that's the worry. I just don't know if that's a real, I don't know if that's a legitimate worry. I just, it's, I'm skeptical. I'm not, I'm not against it. I don't think it's wrong. Just, it's just not obvious. It's not obvious that the consciousness comes with being smarter. First thing that I would say. And the second thing I would say is it's not obvious that even if they make a transition to being a lot smarter, whatever that means, it's not obvious that they will care about our concerns then either. But at the same time, it's not obvious that they won't. And I haven't seen somebody prove that they won't or show me a regulation that will guarantee our safety. Yeah, that's, so, a, that's a whole separate issue when you think about, okay, let's take it seriously. What are we possibly going to do? I, don't, I can't imagine, uh, you know, what we might do to protect, quote, ourselves, humans, 
from these uh, machines other than unplugging them, which, you know, Boster, I think, over-exaggerates it, but, you know, he suggests it might not be possible to unplug them. They'll just take charge of our brains and fool us and manipulate us, and the next thing you know, we're gone. And I, I just, I don't find that plausible. It's interesting. Maybe we should worry about it. But uh, it, given that that uh, we can't imagine what the skill set of these things are uh, are going to be, it's hard to know what we might do to prevent it from happening. I mean, at some level, I agree with you. I think that um, there's a difference between you and I can't imagine sitting here on this phone call and maybe having society invest a little bit of money in in academic programs to think about these things and so forth, and maybe. Maybe with an off intense interest, we might come up with something. I'll give you an example. There is a field uh, in AI, uh, let's say in computer science, called program verification, where you try to make sure that a program actually does what it's supposed to do, which most people most of the time don't do. You know, Most of the time they release something, there are bugs, they fix the bugs, and so forth. And in some domains, that's okay. In a car, it's not really okay. Um, and in, you know, the stronger, more powerful the machine gets, the less okay it is to just say, well, we'll try that. We'll see if there are bugs and we'll fix them. And you would like actually a science of how you assure yourself that the machine is going to do what you want it to do. And there is such a field. It's, it's not, I think, up to the job so far, but you could think about how do you grow a field like that so that it might help us. So there are academic avenues, for example, that you could consider. And there are legal avenues, too. In, Maybe we need to think, have people think more about what the penalties are. You know, how serious is the crime? Is it most people think that you know software violations, um, unless they're like embezzlement, are not that serious. But maybe there should be some class of software violations that should be treated with you know much more severe penalties. Well, yeah, an air traffic control system that went went awry or um, ran amok would be uh, horrifying. Obviously, um, you know, the driverless car that swerves off the road into a crowd. These are obviously bad things they would have. Right now we have a something of a legal system to deal with it, but you're right, we'd have to probably be fashioned somewhat uh, somewhat uh, differently. But when you talk about that kind of regulation, it reminds me a little bit of the FDA, right? The FDA is designed to try to make sure that the, the human-created intelligence in pharmaceuticals is, quote, safe. I don't think it's been a very good I think it's been a very bad way to do that. Uh, I'm not sure we want to go down that road for uh, computer programs. Obviously, we need a computer program that would just, that would measure whether they're safe or not. And, of course, that's impossible, in my opinion, But um, because there's no such thing as safe. It inevitably involves judgment. Yeah, I mean, I think there are steps one can take, but I don't, I don't think that um, they ultimately add up to something that makes me feel fully confident. So that's why I, I still worry, even though... I don't think the problem is an immediate one. Um, I guess the other thing that Bostrom and others have talked about is the problem could come more quickly than we think. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. want the whole species to bet on my particular, you know, pessimism about the field. I mean, I could be wrong. You know, That's I could give point. you a lot of arguments for why I think, you know, next decade, not that much is going to happen. But maybe someone will come up with some clever idea that nobody really considered before and it will come quickly. And all of our appliances uh, will 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 conspire while we're asleep to take that over the house, right? That's that's the worry, right? We, and, we won't, and we won't even know about it. They'll have extracted our organs and sold them on markets before we can even. Wake yeah, up. I mean, then you make it sound ridiculous, but I'm trying. Twenty years, from, I'm trying. Twenty years from now, <laughs> you know, the Internet of Things will be pervasive. People will habituated to it, just like they've habituated to the complete lack of privacy that they have on Facebook. 
You know, they'll be used to the fact that all of their devices are on the web. Yeah, it could be. And, you know, think people that, like, create, um, what do they call them? I, I'll, I'll call it blackmailware on the web, where they, where they, ransomware is the word, where they create something that says, I'm going to erase your hard drive unless you, you know, send me some PayPal money. Mm. Um, now multiply that by the Internet of Things. Yeah, I'd say that's more worrisome than – I'd say, as, as some listeners have pointed out in response to the Bostrom episode, I'd say that's a little more frightening than the than Hal run amok. I think <laughs> in, the, in the short to medium term it is. Yeah. Um, let's go back to some of the technical side of things. And you speculate about this in, your, in the recent uh, talk you gave, and we'll, we'll post that on the episode's uh, webpage. Why haven't we made more progress? Um, as you say, we've made a lot of progress in certain areas – why have some of the optimists been disappointed? Where do you think AI has gone wrong? Well, I mean, I think in the early days, people simply didn't realize how hard the problem was. Um, they, I mean, people really thought that you could solve vision in the summer. There was a, you know, there was a grant for it. There was a, a proposal that said, this is what we're going to do. And people just didn't understand the complexity. I think, first and foremost, of the way in which top-down knowledge about how the world works interfaces with bottom-up knowledge about like what the pixels look like in, you know, are these pixels in a row? Is there a line there in this diagram? And we're pretty good now, 50 years later at the bottom-up stuff at, you know, do these patterns of dots look like a number six or a number seven? We've trained a lot of examples. We can get a machine to do that automatically. But the top-down stuff where you really need to understand the world, nobody's got a solution yet. Um, I think it's partly because you need to do a lot of hard work to get that right. It's possible to build relatively simple algorithms that do the bottom-up stuff. And right now, the commercial field of AI is dominated by approaches like that, where you use big data and you get things kind of part right. So, you know, nobody cares if your recommendation is kind of 70% correct. So I told you that you'd like a book by Gary Marcus and you don't. Well, it's not the end of the world. Um, but there are domains where you need to get things right. Um, driving is one of them. Maybe you can do that by brute force, and maybe you can't. I mean, Google hasn't quite proven yet that you can. Um, if you wanted a robot in your home, then the standard needs to be very high. It's not enough to be sort of 70% correct using a statistical technique. So a 70% correct statistical technique gives you a translation that gives you the gist. Nobody would use Google Translate on a legal contract, though, because gist wouldn't be good enough. And similarly, you wouldn't want a robot that was right most of the time, right? Because if it's wrong a little bit, it puts your cat in your dishwasher and it's bad, yeah. right? And so steers you down, steers you down the one-way street, yeah, the wrong way. There's a higher standard for what's required, but nobody knows how to do that yet. So people are kind of focusing, you know, where where the streetlights are. The streetlights are on how to make money off big data, and that's kind of where the field is focused right now. And understandably so, there's, there's money to be made. But that's not getting us to, to the deeper level of AI. And in your talk, you mentioned, uh, I thought that was a very uh, perceptive point about the the um, what big data is really about is this thing is related to this other thing. And that's not really, that's not what really, that's not what we really want. No, I mean, it's mostly right now doing statistical analysis, you know, correlational analysis. And correlation can only get you so far. I mean, usually correlations are out there in the world because there are causal principles that make them true. 
but if you only pick up on the correlation rather than the causal principle, then you're wrong in the cases where maybe there's another principle that applies or something like that. And so statistical correlations are good guides, but they're not great guides. And yet that's kind of where most of the work is right now. Well, that's what, where we're at in economics. That's where we're at, where we're at in epidemiology. It's where we're at, where we're at to some extent with with analyzing climate, these are all complex systems where we don't fully understand how things fully connect, and we hope that the things that we've measured are enough. And I think they often aren't. So I'm more of a I'm more of a pessimist about the potential of big data. I, I'm. I mean, I had that piece in the New York Times called uh, I think it was eight or nine problems with big data, and expressed exactly that view. The, the graphic that you're talking about actually came from um, something that the Times. Uh, freelance artist did for that op-ed. And I mean, we, we went through all the kinds of problems that you get with big data. Maybe you can put that one in the show notes. Um, ultimately, there are variations on the theme of, of correlation and causation. Then there's some sort of more sophisticated cases. But if, if that's all you're relying on is the big data and you don't have a deeper conceptual understanding of the problem, things can go wrong at any minute. Like the, the famous example now is Google flu trends, which worked very <laughs> well for a while. Google what? Google what? Flu trends. How do you spell flu it? trends. Um, like, do you have the flu, influenza? Oh, flu trends, yeah, okay. <laughs> and what it did is it looked at the search queries people were doing. And for a while, they were pretty well correlated. More searches for these words meant more people had the flu. And then it stopped working, and nobody really quite knew why. And because it was just based on correlational data, it was a guide, but it was a very fallible guide. There were all these papers written when it first came out about how they were much better than the CDC. It was much fa- much faster than than the data that CDC was collecting, and so forth. And it is faster; it's immediate, but it doesn't make it right. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Um, what's the upside? Let's not be so worried for a moment about, um, say, my um, my uh, coffee maker, which I can program. Uh, Taking out my internal organs while I'm sleeping. Let's let's talk about something a little cheerier. What you know, people. I, I've been surprised. Maybe I don't read enough, obviously, but when they talk about the potential for AI, they say they use words like energy, medicine, and science. And I'm curious what, which are all things we all care about. They're really important. Um, you know, I'd like to go to the doctor. Uh, obviously, people are using AI to interpret uh, X-rays. That's a good thing. Uh, sometimes. Maybe a lot of the time uh, I was talking um, uh, to uh, Daphne Kohler about, you know, that maybe they're better than humans. Great. That's, that's an improvement. Uh, what we really want, though, is a cure for cancer, ideally. Um, are those things we want, quote, free energy? We want a battery that lasts more than a day. Th- these are the things that, that are going to change the texture and quality of life. Are they in reach if we made enough progress? I think so. I mean, we were talking a minute ago, I guess, about epidemiology and stuff like that. I think that a lot of biological problems, we'll start with biology, are very, very complex in a way that an individual human brain probably can't fathom. So think about the number of molecules. There are hundreds of thousands of different molecules in the body. And the interactions of them matter. You can think of it like a play with a thousand, 100,000 different actors, right? I mean, your brain just can't handle that. People write plays. Who was the guy? Robert Altman would make movies with like 30 characters and your brain would hurt trying to follow them. Mm-hmm. Well, well, biology is hundreds of thousands of characters. And really, it's really like hundreds of thousands of tribes. 
because um, each of those molecules, there's many, many copies of them. They're you know, slightly different from one another. It might be that no human brain can ever really grok that, can never, never really interpret all of that. And a really smart machine might be able to. Right now, machines aren't that smart. They can keep track of all of those characters, but they don't really understand the relations between them. <clears throat> but imagine a machine that really understood, say, how a container works, how a blood vessel works, how molecules are transported through. Really had the conceptual apparatus that a good scientist has, but the computational apparatus that a machine has. Well, that could be pretty exciting. That could really fundamentally change medicine. So, and that's part of why I keep doing this, despite the worries. I do think on balance that probably it's going to be um, good for us rather than bad. Um, I think it's like, you know, a lot of other technologies. There's some risks and there's some rewards. I think the rewards are in, in these big scientific problems and big engineering problems that individual brains can't quite handle. Yeah, that's um, a little bit mesmerizing and fascinating. I I, I should tell our, our listeners uh, – I wrote a follow-up to the Bostrom episode that is up at adcontalk.org. You're welcome to go check it out. And we, there were some interesting moments in that conversation. But one of the things I raise in that uh, follow-up is is related to your point about lots of molecules being analogous to lots of characters in a play, which is one analogy I think about is history. So we don't have a theory of history. We don't pretend to understand the, quote, real cause of World War One or the American Civil War. We understand it's a messy, un, unscientific enterprise. People have different stories to tell. They have evidence for their stories, but we don't pretend that we're going to ever discover the real source of, 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 of say, the, World, the Second World War, the First World War, Civil War, or why one side won rather than the other. We have speculation, but the real problem is what you just said. There's 100,000 players Sometimes it's just 10, you know, it's just it's Kaiser Wilhelm and Lloyd George and Clemenceau and the Tsar and Woodrow Wilson. And that's already too hard for us. We can't, we don't have enough data. We don't have enough evidence. It's too much going on. And again, I, I think of economics being like that. My, I've got many people who disagree, but I don't think, I think these are many ways possibly fundamentally insoluble. Is that possible? Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between like predicting everything that's going to happen in this particular organism from this moment going forward and understanding the role of this molecule such that I can build something that interacts with it and realizing that if I do, that, that things might change. So you know, I don't know if the entire problem is graspable, but I don't think that that rules out that if you better understand the nature of some of those interactions that you, you won't be able to intervene. No, I agree. And obviously we, we've made – I mean medicine's a beautiful example of how little we know, and yet we've made extraordinary progress. Maybe not as extraordinary as we'd like, but we've made a lot of progress in helping people deal with things that are – we call pathologies, right? Things that are disease, et cetera. But the idea – right? We, and I think we have a lot of potential there for, say, customized pharmaceuticals to your own particular – metabolism and, and body, et cetera, that's, I think that's coming. I think we'll make progress there. Uh, it's the sort of... Um, well, I think AI will be really important in making that progress, actually. So, I mean, if you think about how much data is in your genome, it's too much for you to actually sort out by yourself. Um, but you might, for example, be able to run silico simulations um, in order to get a sense of whether this drug is likely to work with your particular genome. 
and probably that's just too hard a computation for one doctor to do. But Absolutely. we might go have machines help with it. Yeah, and they'll figure out the dose. It's not just whether it'll work or not that they'll tailor the dose, which is remarkably blunt at current levels of medical understanding, right? We all take you know, or find a cocktail for you, right? Right. I mean, sure, because interactions are too hard for us. Um, yeah, in theory, I guess simulation could take us a long way there. Um, but I would add that on the point about simulation, that that intelligent simulation, let's call it, um, is a lot better than blind simulation. Like if, if you really have to go down to the level of the individual molecule, you get back into that problem I was talking about before, com- computational complexity. So you really want the simulations <laughs> to have some understanding of the causal principles that are there in order to do it efficiently. Uh, let's talk about how humans uh, – let's move away from um, this machine that, that understands everything, including what, I'm, what I need next. Not just – not only knows what, what drug to give me, it knows that I shouldn't go skiing tomorrow because I'm not going to really like it so much. I mean th- that's sort of the, to me the – this um, un- unrealistic but, but maybe possible uh, future of the machines – our interaction with machines – what about the possibility of, of humans just being augmented by technology? You know, we think about you know, the uh, wearables, and I, soon I, people are already doing it, of course, implantables. Uh, what's the potential for machines to be um, tied to my brain in, in ways they aren't now, where I'm, now I'm just listening or looking at them, but maybe more directly? Is that going to happen? Well, something else you can add to your show notes is um – piece I wrote on brain implants for the Wall Street Journal in maybe April with Christoph Koch. Um, and we talked about these kinds of things, and, and we went through some of the limitations. So, for example, right now, a problem with brain implants is a risk of infection. Yeah. So, you know, we put something in, but we've got to clean the dressing every week, or you might have an infection that will kill you. So it's a pretty um, serious uh, restriction. You know, I would love to have Google on board, directly interfaced with my brain, giving me all the information I need as I need it. But I don't really want to pay the risk of, of infection and death. Um, and so there's some technical problems like that that need to be solved, and probably will. There are some energy and power problems that need to be solved. <laughs> there's some interface problems. So we know enough about how the motor cortex works to make it so that roughly you can move a robot arm with your thoughts. You can't move it that well. It's sort of inefficient. It's like one of those things you see in the um, you know, the little carnival where you, you've got a little gear driving this thing. It's not a very direct connection. Um, but we know something about it. We don't know anything about how to interfere, interface ideas to machines. So the, the software end of pulling things out of um, your memories, not that hard, right? Google solves that and Spotlight and Apple solves that and so forth. We have technologies for things like that. But the problem of interpreting your brain state so that we know what search query to run, that's pretty hard. Um, it's so hard that we've made no progress on it so far. Um, we will eventually. There's no reason to think that, that there's no code in there to be understood. It's a matter of cracking a code. The code might be different for different individuals. You might have to do a lot of calibration, but there are probably some general laws that, that could help us get started. And someday we'll figure out those laws, but we, we haven't yet. Uh, let's talk about the... Um economic effects and and talk about employment of course is a big mm-hmm. issue right now a lot of this is a little more plausible to me it's not so much that ai is going to um know how to interview really interesting smart people so i won't be able to do econ talk anymore uh there there are plenty of technological advancements that we've seen in the last 25 years that have made 
people unemployable or certain skills unusable in the, in the workforce. Um, what do you think is coming there in the shorter run before we get to this um, super intelligence? What's, what are some of the things that are going to make it challenging for certain skills to be employable? Well, I mean, the first one, the first major skill set that's going to diminish in value pretty rapidly is, is driving. In, in the next two decades, I mean, most taxi drivers will lose their job, delivery truck drivers, bus drivers. Um, most of that <laughs> will go away. Um, and it'll certainly go away in three decades and probably in two. Um, some of the problems are still on the software side, but I think they're mostly solvable. There's some liability issues and people getting used to the idea. But eventually the machines will drive better than people and they'll do it cheaper and they won't, you know, they'll, they'll be able to do it 24 hours a day. And so the trucking companies will want to do it. The taxi companies will want to do it. It'll be safer in theory. It'll be, in it's theory, a glorious thing in theory. Use less energy. It, it'll be more efficient. Eventually all that will come to pass. And, and there the eventually really is like a 20, 30 year horizon. It's not a hundred years. There's no reason that it will take that long. Um, and so that's a pretty radical shift to society because there are a lot of people that make their living driving. And it's not clear what those people will do. The common story I hear is, well, we'll all get micropayments. Google will pay for our information. This is Trent Lanier's story. Or we'll all make tons of money on YouTube and Etsy and, and so forth. And I don't buy that. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of money to be – well, actually, there's a lot of money to be made for a small number of people. You look at the YouTube videos, the top thousand people make a real career out of it, but most people don't. And that's going to be true in each of these domains. So you might get a few hundred thousand people, if you're really lucky, across a whole lot of different creative enterprises making some money. And then you're going to have several hundred thousand people that really don't have an alternative career. Yeah. And and the problem is going to get worse because this is going to happen in, for example, the service industry. So it's already you can, in some places, order your pizza by touching a touchpad. You don't need a waiter there anymore. Um, there's someone who has a, a burger assembly plant. Um, it's completely automated, and I'm sure McDonald's is investing in that kind of thing. So there's going to be fewer people working in fast food. There's going to be a whole lot of industries, one by one, that, that disappear. What I think the end game is here, and I don't know how in America we're going to get there, is in fact a guaranteed uh, minimum income from the state. Um, the state's going to have to tax more heavily the people that own all of these technologies. I think that that's clear. And there's going to have to be a separation in people's lives between how they find meaning and how they work. So you and I grew up in an era in which meaning, especially for men, but also for many women, um, comes from work. I mean, not solely from that. It comes from parenting and, and so forth. But that's going to change. It's going to change because it's going to have to change because for most people, eventually, that's not going to be an option anymore. So people are going to have to make meaning in a different way. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of the, the deepest questions around these technological changes are, are political and, and cultural. So you said you know that those driverless cars are coming in 20, 30 years, driverless vehicles. Could be 10. I mean, right. no, I think, no, I think it can be 10 too. But the question is, I think we'll have the technology. The question is whether we'll have the political will to, to fight it I mean, we, and to make it happen. So right now, uh, just to take a trivial example, Uber, which is to me uh, the forerunner of the driverless car, uh, because I think that's the way you'll you'll be picked up. You'll be picked up by a drone that, <clears throat> whether it's in the air or on the ground, it's going to drive you to where you ask it to go, and it'll figure out through a network system how not to dr- run into other things. But Uber's having a lot – everyone who uses it, uh, almost everyone who uses it, thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread – 
And yet there are many cities you're not allowed to use it because it hurts the, the cab drivers who've paid a lot for their medallions or people are alarmed by it. They find it somehow um, unattractive that they can charge certain prices at certain times or they don't do X, Y, or Z. And um, so that's one question is the political will. The cultural will is, a, is another area where your point's fantastic point about meaning because to me that's what matters. I think people um, – you know the pie is going to be really big, and dividing it up is going to be not as hard as it might as it might be that as you might think. But the challenge is, how much fun is it going to be to watch YouTube all day? I mean, people do seem to be drawn to it. I myself have trouble sometimes pulling myself away from entertaining videos, but that's a strange life compared to, as you say, the way I mean, we grew I up. I personally never watch YouTube, but I will admit I spend a lot of my time, you know, on my iPad. So they, um, and maybe doing other things, but. I think um, that to some extent the pain will be eased for some people because a lot of available. Say that um, again. A lot of what? The pain will be eased. So, you know, the Oculus Rift and its competitors that you know, a lot of people are going to really enjoy um, immersing themselves in virtual worlds. So it might be that this isn't sort of eat cake, you know, a kind of uh, software-driven cake that nobody imagined before. And it might be that some people don't find that meaningful. Some people might, you know, do physical things or go back to the land. I think different people will respond differently. Um, I, I do have to say that that um, the web and and iDevices and all these kinds of things really do suck up a lot of people's time. And I think that's part of what will happen. That that will be even more true. Yeah, I, you know, I see it. There's a possible, obviously, our cultural change as to what's acceptable and what's considered honorable and what's considered, you know, praiseworthy. Um, you know, my parents, and to some extent me, we, we frown on people who sit on the internet all day um, to some extent, but we're already part of the, part of that is happening with us too. So uh, we're not, uh, but our children, they think it's normal. They don't think it's, they don't think anything is remarkable about it at all to inhabit a virtual world in in much, for long periods of time. And I presume it'll become even more normal. So, you know, some of these worries, I think, won't be worries. But as you point out, you know, this desire, we have a lot of hardwired things in us that are not easily changed by culture, perhaps. And, you know, I think about just how physically fit so many people are, physically active in a world where being physically active is really not as valuable as it used to be and maybe isn't even so healthy. People tout its healthiness it makes you live longer but a lot of i think it's just uh desire for real stuff and you know to sim to let points out the the how weird it is when you check into the hotel you see the 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 uh person's bags being carried by an employee of the hotel and then half an hour later that same person's in the gym lifting heavy things <laughs> lifting lifting his own bags but you know we, it's a very uh we're a complicated species we, we are a complicated species. Um, I think what's interesting about the iPad, for example, is how well it taps into our innate psychology. So I think we do have an evolved psychology. I mean, it's a malleable one, malleable through culture. Um, but, you know, people have figured out how to build toys that didn't exist before that, that really drive, you know, first it was television and now it's, it's the iPhone. Um, toys that were the iPod in between. And these toys really do tap into needs that that have existed for hundreds of thousands of years. And so why don't we close with uh, 
with I won't ask you what's coming in twenty years because um, we know that's uh, that's not not the best way to think about it. But what's coming soon besides driverless cars that excites you or that worries you? I'm actually pretty excited about the virtual reality stuff. I'm ambivalent about it. Um, I think that it's going to be incredibly exciting, and some people aren't going to want to leave it. Um, I think it's going to be fun. Like you, you step into a virtual reality system, and suddenly you're climbing Mount Everest. And I think that's different from playing a conventional video game where you might be walking around. I, th- I think that there'll be some real visceral excitement to that, and that might be ten years. It certainly won't be more than twenty. Um, I mean, part of the technology is already in place. I think that that's that's going to feel very powerful. I may wear off. I remember being really excited by high definition television, like watching you know, videos of, of underwater creatures and thinking like this is the most amazing thing ever. Mesmerizing. Yeah. I was totally mesmerized for a month. And now, you know, I watch my HDTV once a month, maybe, and it's fine, but it doesn't really do much for me anymore. I felt, um, that, I felt the way about my iPad too. I, when I first got it, I just couldn't believe what it could do. I just enjoyed just touching it and doing, watching it, putting it through its, its paces. Now it's like, eh. I need it for work, my iPad, so I use it a lot. But, yeah, it's a different um, thing. I, I think some of the the excitement goes away, and then it's a matter of, like, do these apps actually help me? And maybe that'll be true with the virtual reality. But I think also you'll have some people that at least for a little while will check out, and that's not necessarily what you want for your society. So it's complicated, and I, I think that that's the next big movement that I see coming is, is virtual reality is, is in some way going to fundamentally change the texture of society, and I don't really want to guess which way, whether it's going to be positive or negative or, you know, just fun, but doesn't last very long or, or, or whether it's a long term thing. But at least for a little while, that's going to be a big thing. My guest today has been Gary Marcus. Gary, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.